No matter what anybody tells me, I've been through every single fucking crisis from 9-11 to hurricanes to tornadoes to power failures to GFCs and everybody comes up with the new norm word, which is bullshit. People want to have fun. Jason's my business partner in Grand Tivoli. Jason and I have taken every penny we've got left and we're looking at a couple of businesses and they're all going to revolve around COVID, post-COVID and with COVID as well being around for a long time. We're looking now for places to have fun. We're looking for places that, you know, we keep saying post, but my argument would be the market's going to unsettle a little bit. COVID may, the vaccinations may come out. Some people will take it. Some people won't. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. I don't really know. But we're looking for businesses to have fun and not just ourselves, but as for clients. This week, we welcome back our previous guest, Robert Marchetti, the New York-based Australian hospitality veteran. Robert recently launched his own podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, where he interviews industry icons and what he describes as boots on the ground, hospital peeps. That's an Aussie term. Those unseen folk whose voices are seldom heard. Robert's aim with the new show is to inspire, motivate and entertain the 16 million plus hospitality folk in the USA and the 50 million plus globally. With COVID-19 continuing to decimate the industry, Robert hopes that by interviewing industry veterans and on-the-ground game changers, their views and insights into what's next will inspire a generation of hospitality workers to remain resolute and resilient through these challenging times. This is a fast-paced episode and Robert covers a lot. He discusses how he's embraced the challenges of COVID-19 with a positive attitude and with radical acceptance that he may well lose his Soho restaurant and bar, Grand Tivoli and Pepe's Cellar. He explains the need to pivot, how he's used his time to reorientate his business and goes on to explain the work he's now doing with LA and New York-based creative community and workspace Neuhaus. Robert is more than resilient. He radiates a practical positivity with a grounded sense of humour that is uplifting in these strangest of times. I hope you agree. Now on with the show. Robert. How you doing? Robert. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a while since uh, you were on the Impossible Network podcast. I think it's now over six months. Who would have thought? And my God, has the world changed. Oh my God, has the world changed. I think I was, uh, how many weeks locked, locked down when we, when we did the first interview? I think it'd been a couple of weeks that you've been locked down. Right. We thought it was only going to be maybe a month, a month and a half. Right. And here we are about to enter lockdown number two in New York. Yeah, I think I think I was like neck deep in pasta when we were doing that. I was eating pasta every night, just cooking French food every night. I was basically treating my home like a little mini restaurant. But has it changed? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but dining came back, but um, you definitely had to go to the gym a lot more, so that's for sure. Let's talk about 2020 because I've been following some of your exploits on Instagram. And 2020 has been a fairly frenetic time considering it's been a lockdown. You've been up to quite a lot. So maybe you could just give us a little overview as to what the uh, last six months has been like. You know, it's been really interesting. I'm in pretty much the same state of mind and frame of mind that I was pretty much into the lockdown. You know, the lockdown cost everybody a lot of money, cost a lot of lives. It was it was it was pretty devastating to the US and the world. But in in that time we've kept our restaurant shut, which has been horrible for, you know, my business partner and I. We've got millions of dollars in in the ground personally. So we didn't actually have private venture capital to invest in the restaurant. We didn't have tons of partners. It was just him and I and all our money into one spot. So we've actually kept that shut the entire time. 
in the meantime, we've come to, to the terms with the fact that we may or may not be able to open our restaurant again, which is horrible because it was only 14 months old and it was doing incredibly well and it had great feedback and we had you know, an amazing clientele and we actually had our three months best weekends and, and weekdays on record. And for people that don't know and maybe haven't listened to the original episode, you moved here from Australia to open a restaurant in Soho called... Peppy Cellar and uh, Grand Tivoli. Yeah, I, I've been doing restaurants my whole life since 13, 14. In the first episode, you get a bit of a background. I opened a ton of very successful restaurants in Australia. My last restaurant in Australia was actually almost uh, three years ago. I opened it for the QT Hotels, a restaurant called Santini Bar and Grill in Perth in Western Australia. And uh, that's done so well it won best new restaurant and it won restaurant of the year in in western australia which was fantastic for the team nick wood an incredible chef and a friend of mine you know launched the kitchen with me and he he was the backbone to the whole place and put up with me um changing my mind on dishes plenty plenty of times we put that concept together i spent quite a lot of time on the dining room floor figuring out the tabletops and the stemware and you know all that kind of stuff the lighting the music it's you know it, it was a fantastic restaurant but previous to that i'd owned some very famous restaurants and you know one of them particularly you know the icebergs was in the top 100 in the world for a a few years yeah that was in sydney the icebergs is still there with my old partner he still has it i think and that was like in the top 100 in the world which is great and i had a bunch of other famous restaurants which were great they were never intended to be famous they just became them in their own right i think people just kind of you know liked what we were doing we were selling a lifestyle which was how to eat and and relax and, 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 you know, take away the, the stuffy feeling of, you know, six-course degustations. Not saying they're bad, but we, we kind of wanted to be the best in our own field. So we had a lot of fun doing that. I opened some – and then I kind of still worked in Australia up until only a month ago. I, I stepped down as the creative director for QT Hotels, which was, you know, a great parting of the ways. They were great to me. I was great to them. You know, my last gig with them, you know, was the Santini Bar and Grill, which was a huge success and hit. But I'm, you know – absolutely focused on being in the US. I love it here. I love New York. You know, in between that, I was I was in Bali. I opened a beautiful luxury hotel, the Double Six Hotel, and I opened a bunch of award-winning restaurants in there, which I designed from scratch with a really fantastic architect, David Horton, who's also a really good friend of mine. Him and I basically drew out the, the lobby and we put an Italian restaurant in there, Seminac Italian food, and we put uh, the plantation grill and a rooftop. And so we had a lot of fun, him and I. I had a lot of fun working with the Indonesian designers because they're really elastic and really sharp and they, and nothing seems to be illogical or a problem so <laughs> so when i'm like i want i want you know i want the 30 foot high ceiling in the plantation to grill to look like tribeca grill in new york with a vaulted ceiling with brick and you know being an island near you know earthquakes you can't legally put bricks on a ceiling they're like we've got this artist that can paint bricks on the ceiling and i'm like so we literally had a leonardo da vinci on the ceiling painting bricks so i could have a vaulted ceiling i mean that was fucking insane right like i love doing stuff like that so you know i i'd always started as a chef and restaurateur and worked in operations and stuff but my career changed and i pivoted because i love design and i worked in in design quite a lot and i worked for an enormous company called Bedner associates and they have like i think like 25 offices around the world and they're kind of the bmw of interior design and architecture and i work with them as a, as a creative director and working in the fields of design and concept development so i really loved doing that so that kind of got me 
thinking about, you know, hospitality can have so many hats. I've been a dishwasher, I've been a chef, I've been a manager on the floor, I've been an FB director, I've been an operations person, creative director, design. And it really opened my eyes during the COVID lockdown because I realized that I wanted to rebuild my design company. And when I say rebuild, it was always alive. I just couldn't take any more clients on because between Indonesia and Erschbedner Associates and Australia, I was really, really run off my feet because I'm one man and, and I would bring teams of people in on different projects. And then I decided, you know, right into COVID that I would pivot and I would be very thoughtful about my time. I would also embrace the pause that was happening, but I didn't want to come out of it the same. I wanted to come out of it a little leaner, smarter, brighter, mm-hmm. sharper, and wittier and um, with a different skill set. And so, you know, I redesigned my entire design firm and it, it, Robert Marchetti Hospitality, good plug there, and redesigned it by adding all these different key um, services to the company. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing I had a lot of friends that I wanted to work with. So I started collaborating with some friends that are you know, great at SEO work and friends that are great at writing music and friends that are great at photography, not just design, so that I offered a company. So I built a company during COVID. On when, the- did this, when did this occur to you, the need, uh, the realization that you had to pivot? Was it the closure... Um, the forced closure of Grant Tivoli and Pepe Seller, or was it just a, a realization that this seismic event was going to disrupt the hospitality category? I've never been one of those people that you know is going to get to fifty and buy a Harley and or have a near death experience and remember to live my life. I actually do that already. I didn't do it. It wasn't something you're born with. I actually trained myself to think this way. And what I mean by that is, I kind of hit most days thinking. I'm 75, which is about the age of most white males <laughs> when they die. Our women live longer because they're smarter and healthier. But I kind of look at it and go, I'm 75. I look back on my life and what am I going to be remembered for for myself? Not, I'm not trying to legacy. My ego is not that big. What I wanted to do is look back on my life at 75 and go, did I waste any time? Did I, did I, is there something I should have done? You know, is there something I missed doing? And I'm certainly not going to look back on life and think, fuck, I've got a lot. Jeez, I had a lot of Instagram followers. Jeez, I'm really happy. My Facebook profile was great. I didn't give a shit about any of that unless it affects business. And so the design firm came back to its roots because a couple of my friends started approaching us for projects in Dubai, Long Island, and a whole bunch of stuff in, in America. And I decided that I wanted to do a few things. And crazy enough, I started the design firm again. And, and we've been we've been inundated with people talking to us about projects, which is great. I guess a lot of that is also from the side that we offer an umbrella service. And what I mean by that is everything within the company can be done. So let's say you go and open a bar, you want to go and open a restaurant, we want to go and open a hotel. We basically form the entire project services within that company. So we can give you architectural, we can give you interior design, uh, music, curation, menu development, which, you know, I'm a specialist at, kitchen design, which I've done, you know, plenty as well, logistics, SEO, web development. So you can, so anyone that, even in this time where everyone seems to be closing, uh-huh. there are probably still people that are with an eye on the future wanting to open a bar, restaurant, hotel, you collaborate and bring in a suite of services from best of breed partners yeah is that how it works yeah absolutely and and you know that was one segment that i really wanted to do because i really i felt like i'd often meet you know in asia i'd worked in azerbaijan and baku and i'd worked in indonesia and i'd worked in china and i'd worked in dubai and 
Tokyo um, and Singapore and and Maldives. I worked on projects across the world. And so what I realized is once they understood my skill set, they wanted more of me. And that was a good and a bad thing, depending on time frame. So like, let's say somebody owned a, a property and they wanted to develop the hospitality side and they would approach, you know, I was working with Urs Bedner Associates or HBA, as we called it, you know, they would approach us to do some interior work. And then they'd find out I was a restaurateur. And then I go, I can build a kitchen. Yep, no worries. I can help you with graphics. And before you knew it, I was doing 10 parts of their project and then outside physically building it, you know. And so I wanted to build a company where it was a one-stop shop that you could come to and, you know, even now, while I'm thinking about it, one of my best mates is the biggest hospitality construction firm in New York, you know, CNA Seneca. And Wayne, who Schumer is a good mate of mine, I'm thinking to myself, wow, he could be another key service in the company because who's bigger than him? And so what I did is I actually, I think I put a, I think I put a business plan together to hang out with my friends, to be really honest, <laughs> so that we'd get a project and we could just say, hey, let's do this. Let's write some music and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted people to see that, you know, hospitality is more than just a menu and it can come in very different forms. Okay. Well, Having followed you avidly on Instagram during the lockdown and just seeing some of your stories, I mean, you've launched an incredible new podcast uh, series recently called The Raw Hospitality Show. But before we get in and talk about that and, and the the reason and the motivation and goal of the podcast, I'd love to just get your perspective on the bigger picture for the hospitality sector. I mean, obviously, New York, like every other major sort of uh, city, has been decimated by COVID. But perhaps you could just give us an, an overview of what's what initially happened, mm -hmm. what we've gone through, and where do you think things are going to go going forward? Look, we initially all thought it was going to be a couple of months, right? And that that's the only answer I can give to that. We didn't know. No one know, knew what was coming. You know, now they're even showing that some parts of COVID were around in September of, you know, last year. And then you sort of mid, you know, three or four months in, this thing looks like it's going on for six months. It's now a hospitality shit show, you know. And I... Frankly, you know, a lot it's it's kind of been really interesting because a lot of the big companies have closed their doors and not relaunched because private equity are probably sitting around a board table going, We're not gonna fund this. And, you know, it's very easy to to sort of wash them out and go, Well, who cares? They're a big company, but they have people employed in example. their business. You know, there's there's a couple of chain restaurants, I'm trying to remember some of them that are in New York. I can't remember the exact names, but there was one group of restaurants, I think it, oh, you know the what about Tao? The, Tao's still going. They are, yeah. But there's the bakery chain. Not Pain Al Quaten is the, the other one. Um, Let's call it, you know, Fred's Bakery. But it was it was a big um, bakery chain, and they shut the entire group down all across New York uh -huh. um, and all across the US. And, you know, people can go, well, they're private equity. But they had human beings employed there, hospitality workers employed there, people making the, the, the cakes and the bread and all that sort of shit. So... As much as I don't care about private equity, I certainly care about people. So that was bad. And, you know, some institutional restaurants shut, you know, and that was – and even brand new restaurants. I mean, look at the tack room. You know, I don't know what the fit out was, 25 million bucks at the Hudson Yards. You know, Thomas Keller, yeah. one of the world's greatest chefs I know personally. I actually um, used to cook for Thomas when he used to come to Australia. And he's a beautiful gentleman, great chef. And he opened the tack room, I think, six months, I might be mm -hmm. guessing, before COVID. And that's never coming back. He actually posted a cooking show today. I saw on Instagram, coincidentally, that's why it's fresh in my mind. 
and he did a homage, uh, a homage, sorry, to a dish that he had on the menu there because he just said it. He still misses it to this day. You know, he's a French Laundry and Per Se restaurant and pretty well known, America's best chef for, for a few years. The so there's people like that, and and he's he might have been new, and you know, I think related built part of that building, but then related being the property developers. But then there were institutional places, and in that you know, Augustine. Which I brought up in one of my other shows, Keith McNally, who I think you know, I think is one of the pioneers of downtown. You know, the famous Baltazar Restaurant and Lucky Strike and Bastitz. Baltazar hasn't opened yet. No, it hasn't. I don't know what hap- what's happening with that. You know, they had tons of staff, but Augustine shut. I remember, ironically, I had Christmas lunch at Augustine, and it was delicious. And I was sitting at the bar with Jason, my business partner, and I would have never thought that would have been the last time I've sit in that restaurant. And you know, for some people, it'd be like, oh, well, you know, new restaurants. But some restaurants leave a sensory experience with you, just like childhood memories of your food. So that sort of shit happened, which was bad. Small businesses are getting killed. You know, I, I may or may not lose my restaurant. I don't know. But we're just having to be comfortable with that. And then, so that's... And you con- can... Because some restaurants have opened because they've got outdoor space. Right. You couldn't open because you didn't have... I don't have... Room. Even though I've got 110 seats and 200 capacity bar, which is huge, we could get three tables on the street on a corner, whereas the main road to, to the Brooklyn Bridge and a fire hydrant out the front, we could get three tables or two. I, I mean, I can't... You know, used, I used to have to, you know, probably do 10 grand a day just to break even. I'd be lucky if I did 10 bucks. So... You know, and the landlord hasn't been out of service his mortgage. We haven't been out of service our rent. So we're in negotiations with them. Like, am I negative about it? Not really. I mean, I, you know, yes, I lost a lot of money, but it's just money and I'll work work back it again. Most important thing is to stay healthy and strong mentally. And so, you know, I think, look, nobody with outside seating right now is making a penny. That's if they're open. And it looks like another shutdown's coming. It'll probably be a catastrophe and end most restaurants because they've got stock, they've got staff. How do they re-employ their staff? There's no stimulus money coming in. You know, the election's been a fucking shit show. And, and whilst everybody up there is fighting their importance at a government level, you know, there's people out there with livelihoods depend on getting their wages. And, and mm-hmm. so that's, that's kind of bad. I mean, we're talking about – I'm going to come back to – I'm going to come back to the sort of the, the – the vision, the opportunity, and the risks facing the hospitality industry, and in a in a COVID world, or let's say a post-COVID world, but we've been talking very much about New York. You launched the podcast, from what I've read and believe, because you had this vision and a sense of mission to inspire and to engage those millions of hospitality workers, not just in New York but around the world to give them some sort of hope that there was an opportunity coming out of this. Perhaps you could maybe just go into a bit more detail as to what led you to believe that there was an opportunity to do a podcast like the Royal Hospitality Show. Well, certainly not money. <laughs> that wasn't my incentive, and it's fucking time-draining. Well, you're not, um, you're not Joe Rogan yet. No, no, I'm not Joe Rogan. Um, and, you know, it never was um, to be uh, about money. What it was was that I felt like there needed to be a voice for the unheard and of the hospitality industry. There's 10 million in the US, 50 million globally, and I've been a big part of employing people. You know, at one point I had nearly 500 staff in Australia. I've been a big part of, you know, people's livelihoods. And they're depending on me. And I felt like the shows that's that... A lot, that's a lot of people. Yeah, it is a lot industry. of people. Yeah. I don't think people realise how, quite how many. Did you say 10 million? 10 million US it- and 50 million globally. Wow. And, and that 50 million is not counting probably the uncounted. So 
there's probably there's an estimation there that you know even places like India, even Italy, believe it or not, that there's probably another twenty five to thirty million workers that aren't wow. identified in the hospitality industry and 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 affect or 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 sort of uh, almost. Uh, a, a separate line connected to the hospitality industry in some way. So it may not be in a restaurant, but they may pick tomatoes, you know, or they may they may make bread or, you know, you know, illegally at home and deliver it to a restaurant and so forth. So tell us a bit about the the podcast then. Oh, the yeah. show the show's been epic. I've learned a lot from the show. I, I the unheard meaning I really wanted to do a show where A I could swear because I swear a lot you know that <laughs> yeah. I swear when I'm in a good mood I don't really trust anybody who doesn't swear anyway but I wanted to do this show because I believed that there was there was a bunch of people out there that I met that were fascinating some of them are some friends and some aren't but I've known and I just felt like their stories were compelling you know like some of the people that I've got on and they've all kind of just said yes even before the show had any kind of titles, logo, feed, or anything, they just trusted me. And I thought, fuck, that's exactly why I built my company, right? That's why I built the interior design business into a, into a, into a, a full-fledged you know, business because I had all these friends that were really skilled. And so I started to look at some of the names that I would want to talk to, and I wanted to have interesting people and fascinating conversation, but I didn't want it to be like, you know, when you're talking to an actor on a set and you go, wow, you know, yeah, man, he's really cool. Someone actually, with a book to plug. Or yeah, a, a book to plug. To I, wanted, I wanted people to, to give some perspective and maybe give the hospitality people that are out there listening a view that they haven't viewed before uh, uh, from a different point of view, meaning that they would learn something and go, fuck, they've been through that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not you know, weird, or I'm, I'm not, you know, this isn't it for me. I can keep doing it. And so I really wanted to have a broad range of guests. So you call it the Raw Hospitality Show. Yeah. And you describe it as uh, boots on the ground hospital peeps, an Australian yeah. <laughs> term, I believe, <laughs> yeah. where you're talking to not just the luminaries of the industry, but you're also talking to real people. Could you give us an example of some of the guests that you've had on? We we edited today Ron and Mike, beautiful fucking human beings. So Raw Hospitality, A, so that gives me the clearance to swear, but two, Raw, because I get to talk to the Mikes and Rons who don't even have Instagram accounts. They're both in their late 50s, probably 60s, I should say, but I'll give them the 50s because they're probably listening. And they, they both run the bar at Sparks Steakhouse, the famous and infamous spot, some of the best steaks in town. Actually, some of the best seafood in town. Not a lot of people know that until the show, but... Is that the place where Paul, is it Castellano? Paul was, Castellano, was the biggest mafia boss in the US from the... Gam- I think it was a Gambino, Gambino family. Gambino, yeah. yeah. He was gunned down out the front. But wow. actually, since then, they're actually, you know, there's no chance of that. But these two guys, probably some of the most beautiful human beings that I've ever met in restaurants. And they are... I call them Mr. and Mr. Hospitality because when I walk in there, I feel incredible. They remind me why I got into the industry. And the interview is actually kind of heart, heartwarming because when I interview them, we get into this part where we find out Mike actually was a cameraman, not working behind the bar at Sparks because the bar at Sparks, if you haven't ever been there, you know, serves food as well. So they're making drinks for the entire restaurant dispensing for a 700-seat restaurant. Plus, they're making drinks for who's sitting at the bar. Plus, they're serving food for you at the bar and wine. And so they're, they've got to know everything. And the point I was making is that Mike – 
you know, halfway through the interview says, well, I used to be a cameraman, which I kind of knew, but I didn't, I thought it was like a hobby, but he was a professional film set cameraman, did over 30 films. Mm-hmm. And then and then he brings up 9-11 where he got fired from his job because the bar, I think, was demolished or something happened. And so he decided just as an Australian in New York, felt so bad for what happened and just decided to volunteer for three months on site. Of course, no pay and, and, and do something and clean rubble and do all that sort of stuff. And then we find Mike, uh, this inspiring kind of Mr. Happy, pretty much happy all the time, you know, was trading once. He was a trader and he just didn't like it and got into hospitality. And, you know, these boys had lived through Hurricane Sandy and now COVID, you know, 9-11. Yeah, financial crash, the GFC, and they were still inspiring. So they fed a lot of my ideas about how to have a show that, you know, I didn't want to cover over the the dark side of the moon. I would call it of hospitality, but I also didn't want you to get off the show and go fuck. I want to, you know, put the toaster in the bathtub. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want anybody to do that. So I wanted you to get off the show and feel inspired and go. Wow, these guys are sixty. Look how happy they are, and they've got a very simple life, but a beautiful life. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I wanted people to go. Wow, maybe I should pivot. Maybe I should stop being a chef and learn how to be a barman or maybe I'm a barman I learn how to be a chef and so that was inspiring to me the other thing was I wanted to have people out there from very broad parts of the hospitality industry so you know there's a club owner in there there's a lawyer there's a broker there's a construction guy and and the infamous famous legendary Shep Gordon and for people that don't know who Shep Gordon is maybe you can describe because I was stunned by the fact that you managed to sort of in your first series in one of your first ever episodes nail Shep Gordon to be on your show so Shep is you know where do you start with him? The Supermensch, you know, Mike Myers did his directorial debut. And as far as I understand the story, because I've heard it a few times from Shep himself, you know, Mike Myers was having a pretty rough time after a bunch of movies and was a bit depressed and said, can I come and crash at Shep's house? This is how the story came out. And, you know, for a couple of days and then three months later, he was still there. He was inspired and realized what an incredible human being Shep was. And he wrote uh, and directed the movie Supermensch, which is the life and story of Shep Gordon. People that don't know who Shep is and haven't watched that movie. He's a talent manager, which doesn't sound exciting until you watch the movie. But, you know, he was married to Sharon Stone. He's best friends with Michael Douglas and, you know, amazing chefs. And he's one of the – on this – he doesn't gloat about it. He's a damn fine human being. You know, he literally hung out with the Dalai Lama and travelled with him for six six months, had the Dalai Lama crash in his spare room. <laughs> you know, he said to us in the interview that he once met the Dalai Lama and he was panicking, you know, thinking about all the things he should say to him. And when he finally met him, he – Always just he curdled up and just said, "Your Holiness." And then one day in passing, when he met he met the um, Dalai Lama, he said, "Look, if you're ever in town, you know, come stay." And he, you know, as you would say to a friend. And I think six or twelve months later, the Dalai Lama came to Maui and crashed with you. <laughs> I mean, it's like what the fuck? And you know, he was around in Janis Joplin days. He still manages Alice, Alice Cooper. Cooper. Yeah, is his best friend. Him. And so I got him. I, I got. I got wind of the documentary before it was released and I heard that it was an incredible story and I was more less interested in the star side but more interested in the fact that there's an amazing French chef who passed now called Roger Vergé and Roger Vergé was very famous in Europe, probably not so much in Australia at that time but I had his books and they were incredible. He was a silverhead, gentle fox chef, a beautiful man and you know, Shep, you can listen to the interview on the Raw Hospitality Show and listen to Shep talk about him. But I was inspired that Shep knew him and traveled with him and became best mates with him because I loved his books and I'd 
he was one of my first inspirations to be a chef. And so one of my friends told me about the documentary and said, I think they were putting some money into it. I'm not sure. And they said, yeah, you know, Shep's a great guy. You should meet him. You could talk hospitality all day long with him. He loves to cook. And I went, I'd love that. And he goes, well, here's his email. And he's got a hilarious email address too. I won't say it on air because he might not want to give it out. But he gives me his email address and I'm heading to Kauai next to Maui of the Hawaiian Islands. Lovely island. And I'm actually going there with a friend of mine and we're, we're, we're... Pretty much using it as an excuse. We're pretending we're going to go and get a property together on the beach and, you know, him and I, and we end up just going there and surfing and eating. It was super fun. And I, as I'm flying, I'm about to leave Honolulu and I'm sitting on this, you know, in the airport and I email Shep and I just think he'll probably never respond. You know, he's too famous. He knows too many people. I mean, this guy's like the shit. I email him. I get on the, the the flight, which is only 40 minutes. I get off the flight and I get a response and like, hey, and I actually mentioned him, I'm in Kauai. And he says, hey, nice to meet you. Da-da-da-da, it's great. Oh, you're a chef too. I like to cook. And look, if you're ever in Maui, why don't you come by and we'll cook together? And I said, I'll come to Maui. And I messaged him straight back and said, I'd come to Maui. When do you want to catch up? And he's like, this is like a, a Tuesday. And he's like, how's Thursday? And I'm like, yeah. Or I think it was like two days away. And he goes, why don't we cook at my place? The guy's never met me, wow! but he knew my friend, and he was like, well, if he's a friend of him, then he must be. So I email him, and you know, and, and that gets confirmed, and we decide to cook. And literally on the day, sorry, the night before, he, he rings me, and he says, hey, hey, you know, hey, you know, do you mind? I know it's four of us, but do you mind if it's six? Because Alice Cooper and his wife are going to be in town. <laughs> do you mind if they come for dinner? And I'm oh, like, yeah, no. Yeah, no. And he said, Neil Young might come as well. If his flight's not cancelled, would it be okay wow. to have seven? So he wasn't ringing me to tell me. He was ringing me to ask me if it was okay with me to increase the numbers, even though he was cooking with me. Incredible. And that's when I went, i got to be friends with this guy. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy's super humble. And that's how our friendship started. And then we traded chicken cacciatore. We traded, you know, our recipes from time to time and stayed in touch. And I literally, you know, rang him and said, hey, I'm doing this fucking crazy thing and I want you to help me inspire a bunch of hospitality people out there that are hurting right now. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want you to be an inspiration. I want this show to be an inspiration to pivot and to, to know that you're going to get through it and so forth. And he just was like, yeah, anytime you want. So we had an incredible hour and a half interview with him and his dog Wookie and the background barking and he just had a baby which was amazing named Robert yeah and and it was incredible so I wanted this show he would probably be the anchor point to why I did the show because first of all he never even asked too many details it's like if this is going to be a show about hospitality I'm in Mm -hmm. you know it was like done and he's always been like that very giving with his time and that was what I wanted to do with the show you know we've put hundreds of hours into the show six months worth of work everybody kind of thinks you just got a tape deck and you record it but actually the production the editing the mixing the studio bookings you know lining up the people at the right time the tech behind your social media as well as you've been pretty active with uh, pushing uh, both I was a bit stupid in Australia I know because the executive producer Sam so She's kind of yelled at me because in Australia, I had like 120,000 followers on Instagram, but I never paid much attention to it. I thought it was all horseshit. And I really never had inspiration to be famous. So I closed the account down when I left Australia into, into Indonesia and just left it. And then I started it again like November or something last year. So it's a lot smaller than that because obviously in America, I'm not that well known. But, you know, in Australia, yeah, it was quite yeah. easy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the aim is not to be famous. The aim is, you know, really for this show to be an inspiration. And, and so 
you know, th- this whole COVID thing hasn't woken me up from any kind of dream. It's just made me more resilient because mm-hmm. I was already very aware of my ability to change things. And I'm, and I'm absolutely in control of my destiny. I'm not in control of circumstance because I can't change that. And, you know, we often talked about, I think in the last show, we talk about, you know, stoicism. And, you know, a couple of I mentor three young people and I talk to them often about stoicism. Tim Ferriss, um, four hour work week author and Tim Ferriss blog talks about stoicism quite a lot. And he's had his fair share of um, traumas and pasts to build up. And, you know, stoicism is really about knowing what you can and can't control. And I can't control COVID. I can't control that my restaurant may shut, but I absolutely can control what I feed my mind and my body and my spirit. And I wanted this show to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the, there's been much talk about resilience across every industry and category and mental health, which and mental wellness has been something that has probably not been discussed too much in the category of hospitality. And you did touch on it on, last, on, the, on the last interview we did. But what you're doing in terms of nourishing people through this time, some of your guests, I listened to a couple of them with people who have not just survived during this period but seem mm. to be thriving yep. who have actually had the vision the energy um the passion the self-belief and probably the resources as well to actually open restaurants do you think going forward in spite of what's happened the hospitality industry will emerge stronger more vital more creative and, and what do you think is going to happen a year down the line, two years well, down the line? that's a crystal ball question. But what I would say is um, – But from your perspective, from yeah, the people uh, you've interviewed and the insights they've shared, sure. what's, what's your – Well, look, look at somebody like Shep Gordon, right? So he turned around and gave us some great advice. He said he spent six weeks you know, when his child was born in L.A. and he couldn't fly back to Maui for six weeks and he everything was shut down. So he ordered takeout every day. And he said it was one of the saddest experiences. And he found a few people had pivoted and changed their takeout model. And what I mean by that is he would say, there you are, you take an order. It's a famous restaurant. And there, there's a delivery guy at your door with a paper bag, the same paper bag, the same box. And it's a sad state of affairs. Not that the food's terrible, but it, you know, most food doesn't travel well. But then it just arrives. There's no sensory experience. There's nothing. And this is where restaurateurs have to catch up. I mean, I'm thinking of doing the same thing. And then, you know, he's talking about what about a little cookie to say we're thinking of you? Or what about a little some sort of inspiration? He said it's an opportunity. See it for what it is. And, you know, I think he said... Uh, Wolfgang Puck, you know, world-famous chef, owns Spargo's world-famous restaurant in LA, decided to do fried chicken Tuesdays and did a fried chicken and had apparently had a mile-long queue around from Spargo's to pick up fried chicken, tried to do some inspiration and, and put some things in the box and blah, blah, blah. So there's that. The second thing is is that, you know, I think post this, it's going to be a shit show for a while, but most restaurateurs I know are fucking insane in a good way, and they're not going to change careers because, A, we don't know how to do anything else very well, and, B, we think we're really good at what we do anyway. And and the most important thing is that we're never going to change our careers. We're just going to have to change our style or we're going to have to move the dial and make sure that we understand that there's going to be a new age of hospitality after this. But, like, frankly... I've, I've watched so many cyclical processes in the world, meaning I've seen it when everybody goes, fine dining's dead, that's it, it's ended. Then, you know, some idiot brings in the word fast casual. I don't even know what the fuck that means. Um, and I hate that word, be, being that 
everybody tries to reinvent the same stuff. Like when you know, we used to have food courts. Now they're called marketplaces, and it's like there's nothing market. You know, there's nothing about it's the same thing. And so what I'm getting to is, I think hospitality is cyclical. I think every time somebody says fine dining's dead, and then 11 Madison Avenue comes along, along you know, there was El Bully before this. The point of it is that I think with hospitality, we're always able to pivot and adapt, but things go around and they come back around like trends. Like, you know, everybody's doing this kind of food and everybody's focused on that. And then all of a sudden, some dude just opens a place and has really nice fucking roast chicken. And everybody goes, that's delicious. One thing for sure is everybody wants to have fun post this. People are going to be a lot poorer. Some will be richer. But the rich will always be richer and the poor will always, you know, try to struggle. And and so I hope post this that we're just a little sharper and, and meaner and leaner. I've got a question about, I mean, everyone has been using that term, the new normal, overused it. And we ha- what we have seen, what has become normal is our use of online platforms. Sure. Now, whether it be everyone knows Zoom, people are using Teams. I was on one for a... NGO event last week that Hillary Clinton was actually speaking to all these people dispersed around the the US and the globe on a platform called Hoppin. Yep. What I'm I'm wondering, and and given what you were saying about Shep talking about customer service and delighting the customer, I got thinking about this when I was preparing the questions. I got invited during the lockdown to a an online eating group yep. uh, run by a, a British venture from the an online eating group eating group yeah it wasn't like just some dude naked in a bathtub just swallowing hot dogs or anything well that was, we'll that was that a different one. time that we'll was a different video later, yeah. <laughs> but what we had is a group of people there were um about 10 12 of us on zoom mm-hmm. all delivered earlier in the day packages all full obviously plastic package which you drove sure, me sure. nuts because we won't talk about necessarily the impact on the environment of what's been happening but beautiful starter main course dessert and some tequila mm-hmm. and a margarita and then we got on the um, zoom call we ate our dinner together we drank together and mm-hmm. there was entertainment now i thought that was a really interesting innovation now given what shep said do you think we're going to start to see examples of where food can be delivered at a certain specific time and people can come together and commune online and there might be some sort of fusion going forward as to how the restaurant experience uh, re-emerges or uh, is look, reinvented. Look, it's, there's a two, two answers to that. The first one is, yes, I think innovation will come. Innovation's always there. Somebody's always thinking and rethinking, you know, the circle. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of food apps that, probably will go broke because they're all fighting against each other. They're killing restaurants, the food apps, because they're taking way too much money and the poor drivers aren't getting anything. The food apps getting everything and the restaurants losing coin. So until that's rectified, most restaurateurs don't want to deliver food because they can't make money from it. Yeah, you know, they're not like Grubhub and, right. and that, they just take a ridiculous amount. And right. And, and it's, there's no profit in there. Remember, you don't make all your money from food. In a restaurant, the best case scenario is to maintain your ability to keep a good food cost, which is usually under 30%, and the, and the profit comes from liquor. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's you can make money from food, but not a lot. So now think about all these restaurants that are only delivering food, and there's no salespeople at the table to go, would you like dessert now? Would you like this? Because you're now – you might be influenced through the dinner to have dessert, but online you just go, ah, oh, no, I'll, I won't have. Mm. So there's so many different changing – you know, the algorithms that are out there, you know, possibly might be improved. You know, they're going to – definitely AI is going to play a massive role in thinking about what you want, mm. you know, with Elon Musk at Tesla, you know, talking about AI connected to your brain to make you sharper and wittier. That's coming, whether you like it or not. Neuralink. Yeah, and, yeah Neuralink. And yeah. I think it's probably the biggest danger and threat to the world as well at the same time. And that's a completely another conversation. I'd, Elon I'd, would probably say it's a, a counter to the existential threat of AI. but you know, Well, actually, he doesn't. A, he thinks AI is actually the biggest threat to the world. Yeah, that's it. It's yeah. an existential yeah. threat. And he's yeah. building Neuralink as a way to ensure that we embrace AI yeah. and do machine brain interfaces. Absolutely. So, yeah. And I mean, it's already in play. So I think that'll play a role with hospitality. What what sort of role that will be, I can't really guess that. There'll definitely be things that remind you that, you know, apps and push notifications and ordering online kind of child's play compared to AI. They really are. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I, I think going forward, when I know that my local restaurants, that they start to see uh, patterns emerging and it is all machine learning. They know that I will go to, in Williamsburg, um, Meadowsuite and order my... Every week, I'll probably do a takeout for a burger, mm-hmm. maybe a bivet steak or a, a chicken sandwich. And then they'll go, well, hang on a second. A couple of weeks ago, you also had the chocolate flourless cake. Correct. And they'll say, hey, what, what And about? you'll probably have an AI app on your phone like you have Siri, and the AI app will go, hey, you're near your favorite burger place, you know, if you accept those notifications. And it might put some text on top of your thing is, do you still want coleslaw, you know, as you said. But I think in the short term, and I'm talking the next 10 years, mm-hmm. that stuff will develop and change. And, they'll, you know, there's also a bunch of fucking, you know, young people out there that are super smart with technology that yeah. still don't offer good service. We know that because we actually have an old Instagram, Raw Hospitality Show, because the show is called The Raw Hospitality Show. And we've emailed and messaged, I think, Instagram 50 fucking thousand times. And these idiots won't get back to you because... Of so course. You mean there's, so just be clear, there yep. is, there's two Instagram accounts. An old one, which is Raw Hospitality Show, yep. which you want to shut down, and yep. Instagram won't shut it down. They won't. That's they crazy. just won't respond. And I mean, I think somebody, I think it was Rihanna or Beyonce, somebody got hijacked recently on their Instagram. And the problem is, is that this is all great learning and, you know, AI and this and that. The quality of service is what's going to keep hospitality strong. You know, the reality that, you know, there's a lot of companies out there and so-called genius apps that do all these things, but they don't offer a lot of service. And, you know, they're all getting their asses handed to them. Sure, they're making tons of money, but look at Facebook's, you know, look look how much data breaching they had and, you know, in regards to how they've managed themselves poorly, poorly, you know, considering they, they globetrotted around the world. And, you know, these, these, these kind of adjunct companies that don't produce shit, don't give you anything really and the point i'm making is that technology is only relevant if it betters your life and i actually think sometimes it's relevant sometimes it's not i'm looking forward to going back to fucking spark steakhouse and having mike take my order on a pad and pen 
and be really nice and pour make me his in famous a famous martini. Make his famous martini. And I'm not 80 years old going, oh, I don't think all millennials are idiots. I don't. I think all, you know, there's millennials out there that understand it. But like, we've got to focus on service. And I think service is, is what will keep the hospitality industry alive. And I actually think that the minute we can all go out again, we're going to forget this ever happened because mm-hmm. human beings are human beings. We're, we're ineptly lazy. We absolutely inquisitive. We absolutely take risks. And we all think we're going to live forever. And the reality of it is, is you know, we're, we're recording this in thanks, pre-Thanksgiving. You know, everybody's getting on planes, maybe not as many as before, but people are still doing it. And the point I'm making is that I think post-COVID, I think people are going to go back to wanting to eat out, yeah. be out, have fun. The change will come with technology and, you know, maybe it's the death of a whole bunch of other industries. I can probably say that I've taught myself to shop online. I fucking hate buying clothes online because they never fit. They always look better on the model than they do on me. But they're fixing that now with AI and they're fixing that with, what do you call it, the scanning, body scanner, camera. Augmented reality. Yeah, getting that better so they can see my gut and they know that T-shirts probably looks good on him and not on me. So that's good. What will it do with, with hospitality? Who's, who, who can say? But one thing can't happen is that the margins are getting smaller in hospitality, not bigger. And, you know, I made that joke in an interview that, you know, from the movie that Sylvester Stallone did, Demolition Man, and he wakes up from a coma and says he wants something to eat. And she said, Taco Bell. And he said, what else? And she goes, everything's Taco Bell. <laughs> and, you know, that was a big fear for me that, that you know, after COVID, only the corporations could survive. Mm-hmm. And and so I listened to a whole bunch of people through there, all these interviews. And I listened to an interview this morning on Lewis Howe's podcast, which I love. And I think he's great because he's really honest. Mm-hmm. And on his podcast this morning, he had the, the, the amazing Mel Robbins, oh, yeah. who, who's been a TED Talk, a coach, a motivational speaker, and so forth. And she's having, in the first 30 minutes, I haven't listened to the rest, she's having a bit of a moment. You know, she's talking about, you know, failures, her fears again, all her work has stopped, her show has been cancelled, I think. You know, she talks about her anxiety. I want to get people like her on the show next because I think she's inspiring because she's a fighter. That's the same as hospitality people. We're fighters. So somebody, somebody like Mel Robbins on our show would be great because I think she could become really inspiring for people that have failed and started. I've absolutely been successful in so many things and I've fucked things up nice and proper. I did everything in my power to make sure this restaurant would be what it was, but I didn't put COVID-19 on my balance sheet, you know, and I put all my money on black, you know, as they say in the roulette wheel. It, it is what it is, plus the riots, plus all the other bits and pieces. But I'm really positive about the future. I think there's some really smart people out there doing some great stuff, like, you know, a friend of mine, Adam Block, who owns the Press Lounge and Print Restaurant in Hell's Midtown, Kitchen. Yeah. yeah, and he owns uh, another another friend uh, in him, a chef buddy of mine. They have a partnership in a, in a company in, in uh, San Francisco and L.A. Didn't they just uh, buy over the famous bakery in Soho? Yeah, farm shop. He owns farm shop there. He just took over Vesuvio yeah, um, Bakery, and he's pivoted and created an online shopping program out of his business. And so you go onto this app, and he's selling food, like retail food. And he's just he spent while everybody was like, "Oh, I'm just going to go to the Hamptons and the beach in summer." He was building this app, yeah. and he knew what was coming. And he was really, really smart to do that. And that's an example of people in the hospitality industry, you know, pivoting and, and reimagining um, what hospitality looks like. Before we get into some of the other projects you're working on, I've got a couple of things. One, you've talked about margin shrinking. A lot of the comments that have come from people, certainly in New York, that have been going out and enjoying outdoor dining is just the increase in prices mm-hmm. and the additional COVID tax that has been levied. If you go somewhere like uh, the famous Via Carota in yep. the West Village, you not only do you have your 
your state tax, your tax on top of your tip, then you've got this extra 10%. What do you say to people that might be unaware of the pain, the margins of pain that the restaurateurs are feeling, and they just see their increasing bills? What do you say to them to stick with it and to show faith and to continue to go out and dine? Well, it's a really tough one. Do you want the restaurant to survive or not? You know, the reality is the vast, there's nobody, I don't know anybody in New York right now that's going, well, we're making so much money. I mean, people, there are some people making money. There are people doing really well, you know, like Eddie from um, Chinese Tuxedo is mm-hmm. Eddie Bucks, a great friend of ours. We interview him. He opened during COVID and he opened the Tiger, you know, and he's killing it. He's doing really, really well. He made the call to do it and he, you know, he put his money where his mouth is. I think the reality is, is that, the government and the federal government need to probably bring in some tax deduction that they used to have where you can you know basically deduct 40 to 50 to maybe 60% like the UK did like the UK did people to go out and eat on go out and, eat yeah. and then get 50 60% of it back on your tax deduction that will absolutely give an automatic overnight stimulus to the to the country instead of just handing out shitloads of cash which we all want but at the same time you still that runs out and then you still need customers so i would do that i mean new york city is in the eighth or ninth most expensive city in the world to live manhattan particularly so it's a it's a really challenging question you've got you know dominance from people like amazon who are basically whole foods and all that kind of stuff delivered to your door People won't stop going out. So that's the first thing. No matter what anybody tells me, I've been through every single fucking crisis from 9-11 to hurricanes to tornadoes to power failures to GFCs and everybody comes up with the new norm word, which is bullshit. People want to have fun. Jason's my business partner in Grand Tivoli. Jason and I have taken every penny we've got left and we're looking at a couple of businesses and they're all going to revolve around COVID, post-COVID and with covid as well being around for a long time, we're looking now for places to have fun. We're looking for places that, you know, we keep saying post, but my argument would be the market's going to unsettle a little bit. COVID may, the vaccinations may come out. Some people will take it, some people won't. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I don't really know. But we're looking for businesses to have fun and not just ourselves, but as for clients. So post this, I think everybody's going to want to have a good time. Everybody wants to eat delicious food. I don't think any type of cuisine is going to master. I think fine dining will come back when it comes back. I think big corporations will still own a bunch of restaurants. And I still think that there's enough insane fucking restaurateurs out there to keep pivoting and you know building new businesses. Before we get on to your, my other point I want to raise is I'm working on a project with my business partner, Elaine, and another member of Neuhaus, Vanessa Barboni-Halleck who runs Another Tomorrow, the sustainable fashion brand. Mm-hmm. And we're launched this initiative called Back the Neighbourhood, which is really focused at the moment, hyper-local on the West Village, to encourage residents to support the local retailers and local restaurateurs. In particular, not ordering from Amazon to go to your local retailer and not to use the like the order organisations like Uber Eats, but go and pick up your orders yep. from the restaurants. Yep. Can you just explain... Why that's you've touched on it earlier, but I just want to really hit at home why it is important not to use these ordering apps and why to go directly to the restaurant. Yeah, so you know you're not paying the the app basically, and there's the the, the margin that they would make is what the margin the app's making mm-hmm. if and they lose because you pay a fee and the restaurant pays a fee to you know so you know they're double dipping. I'm not saying they're evil apps, but what no, I am saying I'm is not. I mean, they're not employing any easier. Exactly. They're not employing anywhere near the number of people that are employed across the world in hospitality. So they aren't relevant. 
They really aren't. They're an app. They may have several thousand people across the US in one company, but we've got fucking 10 million people in the hospitality industry and they survive on margins. The restaurant survives on margins. The floor staff survive on tips and, and so forth. So it's hard to say that because all of a sudden you can get your favorite burger that's 15 miles away delivered to you, maybe not that far, but almost, and you've got to make the decision to buy local and then go and walk and get it. And it's not, not. It's easier said than done if it starts snowing here in New York. So it's tempting. I get it. I don't know what the answer is for the apps, but I know one thing for sure is go pick up your food. Yeah. So it can make so people uh, to make people just maybe think next time they pick up their app to use Grubhub or Uber Eats that it could be the difference between a restaurant staying open and closing. Absolutely. Okay. Right. Enough said. That's an important point to hit home. One other thing: we are you're working currently with Neuhaus. Before we talk about that. Hmm. I'd like you just to explain the concept. Something you mentioned on the podcast that I'd never heard of before is a thing concept called ghost kitchens mm-hmm. and what that actually means. Yeah, so ghost kitchens are setting up all around the US and friends of mine are doing it as well. They're taking vacant sites where they're taking a kitchen and they're building a business through an app. And so, you know, as much as disgruntled about apps, I'm not disgruntled about all apps, just the food app companies that are taking massive fees um, on restaurants. But what these guys are doing is basically coming up with a ghost business. So they're not a restaurant. They're just a kitchen and they provide you with a menu. And it can be from food and beverage to produce to a whole bunch of stuff. And then you basically order through the app. So it could be your favorite. I think Shep even mentioned mm-hmm. it on the interview with um, Shep Gordon, how people were taking up. And there's some trickery that's happening as well. They're playing with algorithms to have best rated pizza. And some of them call themselves best pizza place or whatever. And they're basically using these satellite kitchens that are in the middle of nowhere and there's a bunch of cooks in there and a delivery program and they deliver food all around the place this isn't new stuff this has been going on for some time i have a friend of mine who's got a great i think i've got to remember the name of it his name's hetty and he's just opened a pasta a pasta place and it's supposed to be great and he was doing that for some time before he opened his first pasta place he was doing the delivery program paying a kitchen that was already in a restaurant to cook his food to his standard and hygiene and making sure it was great. And he did really, really well. I thought it was a fucking really smart. And that was pre-COVID. So he was not taking on the rent and he wasn't taking on all the issues, but he was getting the cooks and he was giving them a cut. So I think there's stuff like that out there that's great. I'm not I'm not thinking that it's going to change that much. I think there might be some fake businesses out there that eventually just figure out how to make money from... When I say fake businesses, I mean there's no shop front or there's no restaurant front. They're just a... A, a kitchen somewhere and it's called, you know, Jim's barbecue place mm-hmm. and you just get their food. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just another way of looking at the margins and looking at the business and seeing if you can make money. Okay. Neuhaus, for people that don't know, is a private members club, a co-working space, a creative community based here in New York, but also in LA. You're involved with it and you actually interviewed in uh, one of your early episodes, Josh White, the CEO. Yeah. Great interview. Could you just describe uh, what you're doing with Neuhaus and where you see this side of the hospitality business and particularly co-working spaces um, evolving? Um, you know, it, yeah, good question. Um, Neuhaus, N-E-U-E, house. Just because our weird accents, people might think we say new house. It is home of the new. Neuhaus is really fascinating. Josh White's an old mate of mine. He's incredible. He built his own amazing brand, Generator Hostels, across Europe and sold that for a lot of money and then started up with Related for the Equinox Hotels. Didn't see that through and ended up taking over the Neuhaus Group 
and and I was fascinated why he did it because I didn't know much about Neuerhaus. I knew it was a bespoke, vetted, membership-based pro place, and I knew that they had incredible office spaces, but I didn't realize it wasn't about that. It was about the community, and they had recording studios, film studios, they had staging areas, they had talks, you know, viewings, all kinds of activities that were happening throughout the group. And so, you know, they've got Madison Square, which is in New York. They've got Hollywood, which is massive. They've got Bradbury, the old Blade Runner movie where they filmed at the Bradbury building. Stunning. They they relaunched that. They've got Venice Beach coming and they've got Miami coming and a few more. They're not trying to be the thousand Neuhauses across the world. It's not the WeWork. Yeah, and, and that always comes up because that's so, you know, WeWork comes up often, even friends of mine are like, what the fuck is this Neuhaus thing you're doing? And it's nothing like WeWorks. WeWorks, you know, crafted itself, you know, unfortunately into this massive office space, scaled way too quickly. And obviously, once their books got opened up, things weren't as as uh, pretty as they, they were. But this, essentially, WeWorks is a I, I want an office, I can rent it, you know, and that's that's essential. And, and then everybody's, oh, you've got to sell the brand, and they talk brands. But in the end, I had two different spaces in WeWorks when we were setting up the restaurant, and they were just fucking office spaces with some coffee and not great coffee. Neuerhaus is nothing like that. So Neuerhaus is, you know, there's, there's multi, I won't say who, but there's big corporations that have several offices across the world, and they use Neuerhaus as them, and really amazing brands. The most important thing Neuerhaus does is align brands with themselves. So whoever comes and wants to get a membership and an office, they have to be vetted. So you mm-hmm. can't, you know, and, the, and mostly Josh's philosophy is, is creative um, element companies that really align with the same thinking of Neuhaus, which is, you know, home of the new, build something, make something, you know, great. And I had been talking to him a few years about it. And I'd stepped down recently from the QT Hotels Events Holdings in Australia as creative director in order to join Neuhaus because Josh approached me and we're working on the project now. So I've become the director of bars and restaurants. So just to pile up my workload a little bit bigger. And the reason I, I honestly became part of it is because of Josh. Because I, I believe in his vision, I believe in him as a human being, and I know he's a good human being, and I really wanted him to be one of the first or second interviews we did. <clears throat> and my task is now is to reimagine the whole hospitality sector. We've got an incredible designer, you know, Stephen, who who works as in-house design, and he is incredible with his thoughts, his creativity. There's some Neuerhaus, there's Sarah, who's a Neuerhaus member. She's reimagining the interior design for New York, and then there's all these really incredible brains that are part of Neuerhaus. Um, you know, Andrew, who runs all the human uh, resources for the group, used to franchise or, or chain out, sorry, not franchise, the Bluestone Lane Cafe, another food and beverage director, Cable, who's an Australian, he's here. And I'm mentioning all these names by first name, just in case they don't want to be known. <laughs> just I'm kidding. But more that there's just so many really fascinating people working in the group with really incredible brains, not only, not only smart and witty, but actually good humans. And so I wanted to join. So I'm right now in, you know, looking at uh, redesigning the food and beverage for New York, working with Stephen closely. He's designing uh, the layouts for me and, and, and or for us uh, at Neuhaus. He's designing Hollywood um, right now, and I'm reimagining the, the hospitality sector for that and Venice Beach and so forth. And I think the future is a place like Neuhaus because I think that quality, will never never be something I, I bring up because it's a given. It's Team Ferrari. No one sits around the boardroom of Team Ferrari and says, let's talk quality and speed because that's a given. The second thing I think is that, you know, membership-based groups that aren't congested uh, like some that offer community, 
safety, quality, and and some sense of intimacy when it comes to who's in the venue and not in an elite way. So, you know, Neuhaus isn't about, you know, the, the million do- billion dollar club or some bullshit like that. It's got no one cares how much money you've got. It's all about what are you doing to make the world a little bit better mm-hmm. and more creative and more fun and more active. So I, I'm absolutely excited about working with these guys. I've been working with them now for like three or four months. And uh, I'm reimagining some things that, you know, are taking us into the future on hospitality. So it's very exciting. Last couple of questions. You're coming to, I think, believe the end of your first series of the Raw Hospitality Show. And I think you've interviewed around seven, eight, nine guests. Yeah, I think we're now 10. You're 10. Yep. What's your biggest takeaway from it? What have you learned? Resilience. I knew how to answer this question straight away when you were asking it. Resilience. The main one is that if you listen to everybody in its in the hospitality sector, nobody wants to change careers. Nobody wants to get out of the hospitality. Nobody is is shaken. Everybody's had trauma and pain and losses, financial losses and personal losses and all kinds of shit happened to them. But I haven't had one interview with anybody in hospitality who said, oh, that's it. We're done. I'm over it. And I... I you know, take my hat off as well to people that want to walk away and know when to call it, you know. But everybody I've met from Jin, who's in music and doubling shifts at bars um, and making music and, you know, complains she can never, you know, hang out with me because she's working 17 doubles in a row and I'm doing pretty much the same to uh, somebody that I can't mention yet because he hasn't come out yet, you know, one of the bar gods of New York to Josh White, the CEO of Neuhaus, who was really inspiring. If you listen to his interview, he's really, he's, you know, he's a Harvard grad academic, but he doesn't talk like one. And he's really, really considered about when he speaks. And, and the point I'm making is that nobody has shifted the paradigm to say, when, of course, we're going to pivot and we're going to change our model, but nobody has said, I'm fucking out. I'm out. This is it. And that's what keeps me going. That's why I love doing what I'm doing. I'm still working on several projects we can't talk about today, but I'm always challenging myself to do this stuff because there's two kinds of people. There's the people that go, you work a lot, and the people that just get it because they see this as work. I don't see this as work. I don't see back-to-back meetings today, recording with you, going to a project meeting now, you know, then going to a second meeting after that. They're not meetings in a boardroom boring me to fucking tears and I'm looking at pie charts and I hate it. This is all passionate, creative, beautiful stuff. So that's what I found with everyone. One guy I'm interviewing, you know, he is closing two of his businesses and opening three. I went to the great Emil who owns Boucherie. He owns Boucherie restaurants, which you've got to go to. There, He's got three of them, I think, in New York. I went to the friends and family the other night. All right, you're going to get this. It's up in Midtown. It's Boucherie, the new one. Midtown, which everyone says is dead. Dead. All those people have deserted New York. I showed you the video, right? Mm -hmm. And I went to Midtown, and my friend Wayne built the place and said, yep, 15 million bucks or more. I don't know how much they spent. I went there for the friends and family night the first night. There was fucking 500 people, all you know, sectioned off and we had our shields and everybody was being safe and everybody was, you know, social distancing. He built, Emil built a 550 or 600 seat restaurant during COVID. Mm-hmm. During COVID. It's incredible. He could have walked away from that deal. What would you say to people like Mayor de Blasio by Como that seem to believe that closing restaurants at 10 o'clock and creating lockdowns 
is the right way forward when there are other people in around the world and that believe there are alternative ways of approaching this. Look, I stayed really non political. We can um, leave this question. No, out. no, we, we no, we ask it. It's, it. it's good. Look, I'm no armchair director, and I fucking hate people that you know that that chair direct. I would say this. I would say I don't know what the right answer is. But I certainly know that I'm not qualified to answer it. And the reason being is I know what I'm really good at, which is hospitality. I became a leader in my industry. I became a leader in design. I became a leader in my food side and restaurants, you know, for a reason because I understand them. And I'm never never thinking, you know, at any level that I am perfect or I haven't got anything to learn. But what I can tell you is I wouldn't want to be the one making the decision on who gets to live and who gets to die and who gets to close and who gets to open. I don't know what the right answer is. Would I have made those decisions? I don't know. They're, 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 surely their lack of popularity right now and them making harsh decisions and making it even worse for their popularity, they're clearly not making decisions for their popularity. Mm-hmm. Whether you believe, you know, we have some friends don't believe COVID, you know, is this is is this bad. Some people that believe it's really bad. Some people believe you should open. Some people believe you should close. I don't know what the right answer is, but I know that I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And I can't sit there and armchair and direct because I watch TV and go, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. You know, the reality is I got three and a half million bucks in the ground. I probably will lose that. Right? I could be really angry and I could blame everybody else. I got no one to blame. I don't even blame myself. I just go, it is what it is. I can't blame, you know, uh, you know, blame COVID maybe. But other than that, what am I supposed to do? Blame the governor? Sure, if we would have opened up three months after, we would have been off and flying again. But we're now seven months in the game and there's no hope of us opening at full capacity, which Danny Meyer from, you know, Gramercy Tavern, and he said his major restaurants need 85% or more to make money. So how's even even at Danny Meyer's level, who's probably the restaurant guru of New York, or God of New York, and an incredibly nice guy I've met him once, how, if he can't make money, you know, with less than with with more, he needs you know eighty five percent occupancy in his restaurant. How the fuck are the rest of us supposed to do it? Because he's really knows how to screw down and prices and margins and control and keep quality in line and do all that shit. So I, I just don't want to answer this right and wrong way, yeah. this black and white view, because I think that it's easy to say it. You know, it's kind of like being in charge of a lot of stuff. There's always going to be people that think you're doing the wrong things. You know, even in my industry, there's been plenty of people being very critical of, you know, what I do, and there's plenty of champions that love what I do. And I don't really give a fuck what people think that don't like what I do. I couldn't care less. I don't lose sleep over it. I don't think about it. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. What I care about is what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do the next day after that? How am I going to keep my people in work? How am I going to have the best culture possible? And that's what I want to do with people like Neuhaus. I want to basically fight through this process, understand that COVID's going to change things. We shut down the other day in LA. We were in the middle of a massive party that was going to, you know, event. When I say massive party, it was an online event. And there was going to be an exhibition and there was going to be a handful of people and it was social distancing and all that stuff. But that had to be shut down overnight. We're all changing on a daily basis. So, you know, there's nothing worse than putting your feet up, sitting on the couch with your fat gut and you're saying, well, you should have done this and you should have done that and you should have done this. And it's like, why don't you get off your ass and go and fucking do something about it? And that's how I would answer that question because I think – you know, I don't think any. You know, I don't think anybody in this position can really make the right or wrong decision. You know, uh, that pleases everybody. Mm. So, well, you know, I, well, it's a great answer, and I think your inspiration to people, aside from doing 
aside from yourself getting off your arse and not sitting on your sofa during COVID, you've been busy and you have been an inspiration to all those people in the hospitality industry by not just creating the Royal Hospitality Show, but by by uh, a living example of someone that is actually just taking it on the chin, moving on and pivoting. Yeah, I mean, so, it's about your people. You know, like I've got... People like Sasha, who's our general manager from Grand Tivoli, hopefully her and I are going to work together again. You know, I care about her. I care about, you know, Ryan, who's running our bars, and he and he's, he's you know, an incredible uh, mixologist, barman, and operator. He's, he's fantastic. You know, Jason, my business partner, and I, you know, I've got a great chef, young chef, Dylan, who, you know, is looking at possibly coming to a, one of our new places if we get one. And, you know, so we've got lots of people around us, even Luke Sullivan, I, I you know, 20... I always get his age wrong, but he's like 26, 28. He looks like he's 12. The most incredible palate, beautiful human being, comes from a restaurant veteran's family. They're the people I give a shit about. Mm-hmm. You know, They're the people I care about that are in my circle that I know that I've got to provide them with income to basically get through this. And I don't want them to survive. I want them to thrive. And I think the most important thing through COVID is if even if it's trivial – and yet something you you say because you know I heard somebody say the other day you should pause and then you should do all these online courses and I'm like well which is it pause or be busy you should do the things that you promised yourself you would do one day and it doesn't all have to be around your career it could be I want to learn a language I want to play the fucking harmonica I don't know but do it now because now's the chance I know I will never have a six pack because I haven't got one during COVID <laughs> there's no chance I'm getting one right I it's look, all that pasta yeah yeah it's, fuck I had pasta I went for I went pasta and pizza with Jason last night I know that there are certain things I'll never do and and I'm okay with that but there's this is a time now for you to be take stock and I agree with take a pause if you need to, take a break, take a breather, read a really great book, and then really ask yourself, are you really content with what you're doing? Because, you know, often like when I'm mentoring my, you know, one of my friends I'm mentoring, she's in, in Hong Kong and, you know, they've had a, a horrible time between COVID and the riots and all that sort of shit. And I, you know, she's like, oh, I just want to be happy. And I go, no, you don't. You want to be content. I said happiness is a fleeting fucking emotion, just like anger, just like, you know, anxiety. You can, can, you know, anxiety is living in the future, depression is living in the past. The most important thing, the absolutely most important thing is having good rhythm and to be content because you can't – if you wake up every day and say, I'm just always happy, you're either fucking insane or you're lying, right? Because no one's like that all the time. I think you need to interview Mo Gaudet from – who wrote the book Soul for Happy. I think he'd be a great guest. I love that. I would love that. You know, and and that's that's how I view life. I wake up every day and I think, look – I, you know, I've started taking the train a lot more every day because it's a lot more empty. And I sit on the train, I'm listening to my music. I don't have to check my phone and I love doing it, right? And, and so I try and find great moments in small things. And if you can find great moments in small things, imagine the big things when they arrive. So, you know, a ripe tomato, a beautiful ripe tomato with some olive oil and salt and pepper Peter. is, a, you know, is like the metaphor of sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. The, the, the idea of small things appreciate the small things like something like putting your feet up after a really hard day's work opening a good book or listening to music or hanging out with your friends last night i hang out with cosmo who i interviewed the other day and his girlfriend alex and jared and you know jason and all of us it all started with let's have a healthy dinner and then before you knew it we had pizzas and pasta and whatever i had a great time i still got out of bed this morning six hours sleep got up, I feel fantastic, I'm getting on with it. And I think that's what I want the show to do and that's what I want people to feel. Like there's always a way 
to move through this, but I don't want the hospitality people to survive. I want them to thrive. And that's to figure that out during COVID and post-COVID, that's the key. Okay. Final question. Who do you want to interview for the Raw Hospitality Show? Next. Who's the big name you want? Who's the... You've had Chick Gordon. You know, I'd probably like to get Hugh Jackman because, A, I used to own the Icebergs, and I remember once we did this show and we'd looked after them a few times in the Icebergs restaurant, and his wife Deborah had some causes that we'd help support, you know, Doesn't through the he restaurant. Have the um, the great coffee charity. Yeah, he, that's why, because oh, I was right. like the yeah. hospitality side, right? And and where I was going, I did this show once where we had the restaurant in full operation. Icebergs. Oprah was in Sydney. She comes in with her girlfriend for lunch. And they do a live feed of Hugh Jackman on a seaplane flying by our restaurant, pointing down at the restaurant and going, that's one of my favorite beaches, one of my favorite restaurants. You know, you can't get better press than that. And she's in there, and I think they were playing like they was talking. And I will never forget that. And I remember always how, how much humility he has. And, you know, he's scarily nice. I listened to his Tim Ferriss interview. That's great and I always, I always joke and go, somebody, if, if, particularly if a woman brings up Hugh Jackman, I go, Duh, he's a terrible human being, just to see them get really <laughs> upset because I know he's not. And he's so nice. It's like, so probably him because he owns Laughing Man Coffee and it's 100% of the earnings go back to charitable causes. Um, it has a real insight. I'm really interested because he promotes the shit out of it, deservingly so. And they do really great coffee, not because he's a celebrity, because he does really great coffee. And I wanted to talk to him about the future of it, hospitality, how he saw hospitality, because he's a big, big supporter of New York. He lives here. And so he's probably my next guest. That's if we can get him. Yeah. I well, think Tim Ferriss and him are mates, and it took Tim Ferriss like a year to get him on. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's see what we can do. Okay, well, Robert, thank you very much. Thanks so much um, for having people, me on again. If, if people want to listen to the Raw Hospitality Show, where will they find it? Well, we're, you know, we filmed it on YouTube. I really wanted it filmed because I felt like COVID, there was a lot – people had a little bit more time in some aspects. most aspect. of them, you are doing face-to-face. Most of them are doing face-to-face. There's one – Shep couldn't because he was in Maui and I, we had COVID restrictions, so I couldn't go there. Otherwise, I would have. But they're, they're on YouTube. They're on Spotify. They're on iTunes. Um, and Apple yeah. Pod, yeah, Apple Podcasts. Yeah. So I think, like, look, the the YouTube one for some reason it's it visually more fun. We've got a really great interview coming up at the end of the season with Magic, with a really big, big uh, foodie, and he's actually not a restaurateur. He's not in hospitality, but he kind of fucking is hospitality. <laughs> it's really fascinating, and he he's great. And then we've got another two or three rolling out. Monday's show with Mike and Ron's going to be fantastic, so I can't wait. So just – and if you go and, and you watch it, I'll plug the shit out of it, you know, the Raw Hospitality Show. And go to YouTube. Follow you on social media. Follow me on social media. The. The Raw Hospitality. The. It has to be a the in front. You can get me on Robert Marchetti or Robert underscore Marchetti underscore Lifestyle. Robert underscore Marchetti underscore Lifestyle. That's my main page. And then The Raw Hospitality Show. But YouTube, if you go there, subscribe so we know you're following us. Um, and give us a rating if you can. And hopefully it's five stars and you know I didn't talk too much bullshit. And if anyone wants to check out your hospitality business, Robert Marchetti, where will they find that? I've got a robertmarchetti.com. It's easier just to go to the webpage. So robertmarchetti.com. It goes everywhere because I'll, I'll fuck all the names up at some point. And, and they get can them also wrong. find the podcast there as well. You can find the podcast there. So we just built the new site, which is looking incredible. So you can click on there and have a look. Love your feedback as well on the hospitality show. So anybody wants to direct message me and give me some feedback, go for it. Good, the bad, the ugly, I'll take it all. Okay. 
And if they want to get in touch, just DM you on Instagram with yep. uh, ideas for people to be on the show. Yeah, unless you're a freak and you're looking for a husband, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, enjoy Thanksgiving, and hopefully this show will go out in the next couple of days. See you later. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe, and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review where you can, because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This show is a Fabrica Collective production. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.